This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters, and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello everybody and welcome back to Ozpol Snackpod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian politics and news with a side of crispy memes. And we're also, for the time being, the official podcast of the Ozpol shitposting Facebook group, which may not exist much longer. Uh, my <laughs> name is Noon and with me is my co-host. Hey, Zachless Snack. Nice to be back with you, Noon, after a week off, and um, hopefully Facebook doesn't ban political memes, otherwise we'll really be in the lurch. Yeah, I'm thinking about mm. gently migrating to Reddit. It, 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 see, the thing about, yeah, like, talking about going anywhere else on the internet is also like, uh, like, I don't like Facebook, I actually hate Facebook, but... Everywhere else, there's, there's no way where you're like, oh, yeah, great. Let's do that. I'll go yeah. to I'll go to Twitter, I Discord? guess. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that later in the show. But um, up top, we have a bunch of really exciting news, which, the like, we got so many patrons this week. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Wow. It was wild. So Rob's and Beth boasting both increased their pledges, so thank you, you two. That's lovely. And then we had a whole heap of new sign-ups. So Bronwyn, Patrick, T, Clara, Reese, Michael, Megan, and Jimmy. That's amazing. And we... Well, that we puts have... us over 100. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. That puts us at 101. And I think both Megan and Jimmy share the honor of being the 100th patron. I'm not... Patreon you know. was a bit weird. It was like it, we were at 99. I put that screenshot in the group and then we got a bunch of emails being like, someone just signed up. And then it was like, you've got 101. We're like, that the numbers here don't quite make sense. The time, mm. whatever. But both of you, congratulations. Yeah, I and think both you. of them were like keen to be number 100. Yeah. And so you both are. Thank you so much. We love you. All of you who signed up, we love you very much. Especially Megan and Jimmy. That's very... Very lovely, the both of you hanging out to be to, 100. Uh, put us over yeah. the line because we had set ourselves a goal: 100 patrons equals we release the special Extendo remix of the Ospol Snackpod theme song, featuring lots of uh, drum and bass chops and um, samples, etc. Uh, Which was a suggestion from Alexander Papasavas, friend of the show, long-term listener, friend, confidant, member of Inner Sanctum. So thank you for that suggestion. It is now realized. So I hope you rave hard. Yeah. So we'll play that. We'll, play, we'll premiere that remix at the end of the episode. Stick around for that, and then uh, I'll we'll probably upload it to like YouTube or whatever, and post it on socials in another time. If you don't want to sit through what is probably going to be an extraordinarily long episode today, because there yes. has just been, as there always is. So much goddamn fucking news. Too much news. Yeah, including some fake news. Uh, this is still all oh. about intro. We haven't even got to our intro yet. There was some fake no. news this week, perpetrated by none other than 
one of the SnackPod hosts, and it was, in fact, me. I, I published blatant lies on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> uh, Zach very politely was like, uh, are you sure about this? And I was like, yes. And then he was like, uh, why didn't you check? And I checked more, and it was not true. So my apologies. Uh, it was You were excited because you thought we had a scoop. I did think we had a scoop. Someone, res- someone messaged me the... being like, hey, this thing. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I respect the, like, the energy mm. with, that you brought. Um, to disseminate you know, just fake news. Yeah. Next time, be right about it, that's all. Yeah. I guess, yeah. yeah um, cool. The other, Before we uh, get into our entree as well, there's um, been a little bit of action with some Proud Boys here in Australia, which we don't really have time to cover this week. And there's no point us covering it because we could never do anywhere near as good a job as Tom Tanaki and Yeah Nah did on Tom Tanaki's podcast, yeah. The Poor Can Feed the Birds. So highly recommend going and checking that out. I wish that I was like 10% as naturally funny as either of those guys. Um, that's a great conversation, so go and, go and listen to that. And the other thing that we're not going to talk about um, is uh, a little bit of a follow-up to the story that we spoke about um, two, two, maybe three weeks ago uh, about the systemic racism at... Collingwood Football Club, and Eddie Maguire has resigned. Uh, Bye. Yeah. See you later, you fucking racist. Um, cool. Obviously, the club oh, still has a lot to work out, and Maguire continues to be a rich and powerful person, mm. uh, holding many other positions of authority. So the story is definitely not over, but I think we can pretty unequivocally say uh, good riddance. Mm-hmm. Agreed. All right. What are we having for our entree, Zach? Well, this week, uh, I wanted to talk about the family court. Um, We spoke uh, at length about Pauline Hanson's inquiry, a parliamentary inquiry into the the family court. Mm -hmm. And I think it was our 16th episode. So maybe go and check that out if you want a little bit more background. I say Pauline Hanson's inquiry. It's, you know, a government inquiry, but she was given the deputy chair position and it was sort of widely seen as like, a uh, bit of a, you know, it was like throwing her a bone, a sop. If I was a political mm-hmm. journalist, I would call it a sop mm-hmm. to Hanson. Um, but anyway, this week, Parliament has just passed a bill that will merge the family court with the federal circuit court. And this is going to effectively abolish the family court as a specialist court that deals with family, it, family matters. So, I mean, the government says they're doing this for efficiency and affordability reasons. Mm-hmm. The Attorney General, Christian Porter, a renowned misogynist, says that the court takes too long to settle cases. Uh, you know, oh, it's probably it, true. Well, yes, exactly. So, obviously, the solution is to just get rid of it entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this merger is, is against the advice of over 150... I couldn't find a better word for this than stakeholders, which is mm-hmm. a term I really hate because mm-hmm. it makes it sound like people have some kind of financial interest yep. in a fucking... <laughs> Social issue, but anyway, against the advice of over 150 stakeholders, including the Women's Legal Services, Law Council of Australia, Community Legal Centres mm-hmm. Australia, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service. Uh, in other words, anyone who has anything to do with the family law sure. courts says that this is a terrible idea. I've got a quote here from uh, the Chief Executive of Women's Legal Services. This is a devastating outcome for families in Australia, for vulnerable children and vulnerable women who are affected by domestic violence. Um, So 
that gives you an idea of the flavor mm -hmm. of the of the response throughout mm -hmm. the like legal community. Uh, so th this bill passed the Senate with the support uh, of independent Senator Rex Patrick, yep. uh, formerly of Center Alliance, formerly of Nick Xenophon team. I think he was actually the guy who replaced Nick, Nick Xenophon. Xenophon when, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, his was the vote that was kind of required to get this over the line, but more key, I think, to the story is Pauline Hanson's One Nation. Uh, she and Malcolm Roberts, who are the only two Pauline Hanson uh, party senators, both voted for it, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and this comes in the wake, as I mentioned earlier, of Pauline Hanson's very fucked family law inquiry, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is due to give its results next week. That seems They're weird like, to abolish the family court just before the review into it comes out. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh -huh. um, and, we, and as as we spoke about, um, Pauline Hansen's motivation for the inquiry yeah. was this belief that fathers were being hard done by by the family court system, and that's just demonstrably not true. Mm -hmm. It's like Which in, again, I think we vanishingly. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah, but basically it's like a vanishingly small percentage of cases that a family court would ever rule that a father would not be allowed to have access to his mm. children. Um, and in fact, the opposite is true. The family courts repeatedly put children in danger mm. by prioritizing shared parenting responsibilities over the safety of the children. Mm -hmm. So kids would, were like frequently getting put back into the care of abusive and sometimes sexually abusive fathers mm. because, yeah, the, like basically I, I heard it described as the, the court had, was ideologically captured, which I think sums it up perfectly. Yeah. But essentially, yeah, like fathers' rights, fathers' rights lobbying groups had, yeah, that like had successfully lobbied to, to prioritize shared parenting over the safety of children. Mm -hmm. So... The family courts are fucked, but for the opposite of the reason that Hansen claims. Right. Um, and like I said, you know, analysis at the time when Hansen was given deputy chair mm -hmm, of this inquiry mm -hmm. kind of focused on the fact that, you know, on the idea that it was political maneuvering, that it was the government giving Hansen something she wanted to get her on side so that, you know, that she would work with them. I think it's pretty clear now that it was a that it was totally a tactical move, part of a planned assault on the family courts. Right. Um, and at the root of it, I think, you know, it is misogyny pretty much. The family courts are perceived by the government and by a lot of the population mm. as being a place where mothers are given preferential treatment over fathers. So the government sees it as an ideological enemy, regardless of whether or not that that's reflects the Actually, truth of what happens on. in those yeah. courts, which it doesn't, as I've said, it does not. Um, so what should actually have been done? Well, one of the points uh, that we made last time we talked about this is that there are already two existing inquiries that had been done very, like, recently before mm. this new one that Pauline Hanson is deputy chair of, and both of them recommended abolishing the presumption of equal shared parental responsibility. Mm -hmm. In other words, they were like, obviously, you need to be prioritizing the safety of children <laughs> over parents getting equal access to the children. Mm -hmm. Don't know why that needs Mind to be said, but here stuff. we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty yeah, innovative stuff. And, and obviously the other big issue is resourcing. There are mm -hmm. long wait times at the family court. 
But of course, this is a classic neoliberal strategy. Yeah, you underfund yeah. something that you have an ideological opposition to, and then you say, hey, look, this, this service is so inefficient. We've got no option but to either privatize it or abolish it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the other points I saw made was that uh, people in regional areas actually don't often have access to family court in the first place. Okay. And something like the circuit court is more accessible. And so a specialized stream for family court matters in the circuit court could actually be beneficial to people in rural communities and regional communities mm-hmm. um, is one kind of argument for the merger. So, you know, all in all, like the system was not at all serving the needs of mm. children and definitely needed sweeping reform. Yeah. But this merger and abolition of the court is not an attempt to improve the system. Mm. It's just an ideologically driven dismantling of a, a site of perceived opposition to conservative values, basically. Um, so it is ambiguous. Some people are arguing sure. that, you know, the absorption into the federal court might actually mean that more resources do get allocated to family court matters. But having a specialized court has so many advantages as well that you don't get from entering a generalized court system. And that's because the family court is often dealing with really, really sensitive Mm. issues of domestic violence, of child sexual abuse, stuff that requires like a really in-depth knowledge of a very specific area of law and also understanding of trauma. Mm. And, you know, that may not be there in this more generalized system. So as I said, you know, the kind of legal community at large has been like, this is fucked it's very obvious to me that this is a totally ideological move by the yeah. government. But on the other hand, the family court system had already been completely, as I put it, as was, as it was put before, ideologically captured. captured. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I thought I'd close this story out with a quote from uh, Jackie Lambie, who, you know, she's one of those broken clocks. <laughs> she said this to Porter in parliament. Or she addressed this to to Porter in Parliament. What is wrong with you people? You are playing with people's lives. I hope you can wear it, mate, because you're going to see a lot more hurt going on in these families and more suicides going on. I hope you can sleep at night time. Quite frankly, you disgust me. And uh, (laughs) when her finger's on the pulse, it's on the pulse. What can you say? Yeah, that's awful. Um, But thanks for informing us about that, Zach. And yeah, I can just perfectly hear Jackie Lambie saying that in my mind yeah like her, her sound bites are of a high quality mm-hmm. um just also unfortunately often extremely racist yeah yeah all right well let's move on you fucked up uh and i've got a little mini fuck up within a fuck up here uh that the canberra times Ooh. fucked up uh because i was reading about this case and they said that the south australian independent commissioner against corruption is amanda vanstone and Amanda Vanstone is a former Howard minister. She was like, she's on the ABC doing conservative talkback, or not talkback, yeah, conservative radio. And I just, writing terrible opinion pieces in, in the age about how Malcolm Turnbull was the savior of all humanity, but also he wasn't right wing enough. Um, <laughs> and, and I was just furious. And I like, I basically couldn't concentrate on the rest of this story. I was so angry that Amanda Vanstone was the independent commissioner against corruption and it turns out it's not her it's Anne Vanstone her sister-in-law um so yeah 
you fucked up camper times and also me i guess but i i checked i guess so yeah. um, i'm glad, like no i think it's a good catch thanks you, you know you're out there cross-referencing your own misinformation at this point mm-hmm. clearly you learned your lesson that's true yeah i was getting rid yeah. of the angrily tweet about it and i was like ah. <laughs> <laughs> this happened before um okay but the the commissioner against corruption is important because this story is about south australian mp for narunga fraser ellis he fucked up uh, because he has been charged with 23 charges of fraud by the state ICAC. Uh, and these uh, charges... That's a whoopsie. It's, I think in the, in the business that is... <laughs> the whole that of the official term is, is an oopsie goof. Yeah. Mm. Oh. Yeah. So there were a series of oopsie goofs. Alleged oopsie goofs. Um, <laughs> uh, alleged fraudulent expenses claims totaling over $18,000. Um, hey, come on! That's only half of an annual internet bill. He's already paid back more than forty thousand um, dollars. This is eighteen thousand oh more that seem to be more criminal than that forty thousand. Basically, the way that it works is that MPs who live out of Adelaide get two hundred and thirty-four dollars a night for nights to spend at work in Adelaide at Parliament or whatever, you know, for hotels and stuff. And according to Anne Vanstone. It will be alleged that Mr. Ellis claimed the allowance for nights he did not spend in Adelaide. There were 78 alleged fraudulent claims. That's that's a lot of fraudulent claims. What, Is it what was batch that? submitting these fraudulent claims? What was that cop uh, with the uh, energetically and enthusiastically... Enthusiastically <laughs> managed fraudulent portfolio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. He's been yeah. going around looking up nice hotels that he might want to spend a night in, but not actually spend a night in. This is... Um, Energetic and enthusiastic fraud. Totally, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a fair description. Energetic and enthusiastic oopsie goofs. Well, yeah. alleged oopsie goofs, Zach, because Fraser so, alleged oopsie goofs maintains that he is innocent, uh, as have three other South Australian Liberal MPs who have since paid back thousands of dollars ex- of expenses and resigned from their portfolios. Um, oh, nothing Nothing screams innocence <laughs> like paying back the money tens back of thousands and, of dollars. And quitting your job. <laughs> Well, so <laughs> it's it's pretty blatant, hey. They're not sending us their brightest. We say it every no, week, and, and it, it's it's, it's so fu- like I hadn't heard about this until you um, pointed it out to me, mm. and like it's just so funny that like obviously this has been an enormous news week. There's been absolutely wild shit happening, stuff, yeah. and stories like this just get absolutely buried in the shuffle. But like, yeah. I'm just glad you. You sifted through and found this pearl. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I'm enjoying it a lot. Well, so these other three MPs resigned from their portfolios. They were ministers and they resigned from their ministerial roles, but they're still in parliament and still members of the Liberal Party. Uh, Mm. But Ellis has resigned from the Liberal Party, which is really taking it a step further. And so this means (laughs) that the Liberals have lost their majority in the South Australian (laughs) parliament. Um... They were right uh, on the- it's just just when you thought the story couldn't get any fucking sweeter. Oh yeah. boy. It it gets much sweeter. Um I, I think. <laughs> oh yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just this is the, the base level. Um so well the minority government, honestly, there's nothing too exciting there. They're now officially in minority government, but Ellis will presumably continue to support all of the legislation. So in effect, nothing's likely to change unless he gets like charged and forced to leave Parliament. But one fucked up aspect uh, of this whole thing, which is the reason I said it was much sweeter, is that he decided to announce his resignation at 2 a.m. 
um, after a long <laughs> debate about a proposed bill to decriminalize abortion, which whoo, passed. Great. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, incidentally, one of the people who voted against this bill uh, crossed the floor, right? He's a liberal member who crossed the floor was Stephen Knoll, one of the former MPs who was investigated by ICAC and admitted to three false claims, which he says were accidental, paid back nearly $30,000 in travels expenses, resigned as a minister, and has announced he won't contest the election in 2022. Um, that's, that's a side note. Cross the floor in which direction? So the Liberal Party have them had, until after this vote, the majority in South Australia, and this was a Liberal MP who voted against the bill. So the Liberals... We're trying to decriminalize abortion, which they have yeah, done. Gotcha. There's some yeah. amendments passed or whatever. Um, and this guy voted against the government. Yeah, I think abortion. we mentioned, we mentioned this it. bill when yeah. it passed the lower house. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Great uh, news. No, no. Even, this, was that's it, an even... this was it passing the lower house um, at 2 a.m. this week. Um, oh. Yeah. There you go. Um, but Oh, maybe it was because it was amended in the Senate and needed to go back again. Anyway, sorry, something. go on. So, back to Fraser Ellis. He announced his resignation at... 2 a.m., well over 24 hours after he gave his resignation to the Premier. Um, So the Premier knew he was in minority government, didn't tell the Parliament about it, presumably didn't tell the Governor-General about it, uh, and the leader of the Labour Party, opposition leader Peter Malinowskis, said it was a stunning revelation. People are also rather alarmed about the fact that he'd informed the Premier and the Premier had said absolutely nothing about it, despite having opportunity to do so. This speaks to a degree of secrecy that I think South Australians are alarmed about. Which, you know. No shit. Yeah. Uh, That's pretty intense. This is a wild story. And the yeah. IPAC says that she's still investigating several MPs. So more, more scalps to come. Um, but wow, hopefully more people like losing the balance of power and then just like sitting on that information. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we or me finish, learning just... the names of more leaders <laughs> of Australian... state labor parties that I had no idea existed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But look, b- before we go, I just wanted to say the base salary for a South Australian lower house member is just over $200,000 a year. So I just sort of wanted uh, to put that no, in perspective. No, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense then. Because, you know, these $40,000 of alleged... No, I mean, barely be covering daily penthouse Some of the suites and lobster final... dinners. I was also going to mention lobster. All right, let's get, <laughs> let's get on with this. What, what's up next, Zach? Hey, man, I've got some more beers. Oh, uh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. No, come on, we're having another round of Coronas. Yes, yeah, a quick Corona update. Uh, here in Victoria, we had a five-day circuit breaker. Combo um, breaker. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Nineteen people um, were connected to a, a cluster at the Holiday Inn, and I did consider playing a clip from the ludicrous song "Feet Chingy" uh, called "Holiday Inn," but I have oh. chosen not to do that. <laughs> I just every time it's appeared in the newspapers, think of the time that it's mentioned in uh, Weird Al's magnum opus, Albuquerque. That's right, the world-famous Albuquerque Holiday Inn. Okay, that's all going. Coincidentally, that song also goes for 19 minutes. There you go. Um, so, yeah, there's another uh, failure of the Victorian hotel quarantine system. At this stage, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that uh, it's fucked. Uh, but the lockdown seems to have worked. Uh, there were no new cases on Wednesday, and the lockdown lifted that evening. Uh, but the tennis still happening; people still going. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Great. We haven't really cool. talked about um, that, but it's great and cool. 
yeah, I don't know if I have much more to say about it than that. Mm-hmm. I lost all interest <laughs> in the sport as soon as Kyrgios was knocked out. Um, so I don't care about anything to do with it anymore. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, ridiculous that it's been allowed to happen. Um, otherwise, uh, the big corona news is that vaccines are going to start getting rolled out from next week. So the first doses of the Pfizer vaccine arrived this week. The AstraZeneca doses are starting to arrive next week. And the vaccines are getting rolled out in four phases, which the government has helpfully divided into two phases. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so <laughs> these fucking people <laughs> love indented legislation. That's that's why, the... and <sighs> I could not tell you why, uh, other than I guess they get to cl- now say that more people are included in phase one. Because so you've got phase one A and phase one B. Right. So that's a lot of people. So fa- okay. Yeah. Which are like, you know, they're getting rolled out at pretty different times. Phase 1A is happening starting next week. Phase 1B is probably not going to happen until late March. Mm. Um, give you an idea of who that includes. Phase 1A is quarantine, border, frontline healthline workers, uh, as well as workers and residents of aged care and disability care facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, those are start- going to start to get rolled out from next week. Phase 1B is people who are over 70, other healthcare workers, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are over 55, adults with underlying medical conditions, which includes those with a disability. And the the other people included in this is uh, critical... I'm reading from the, uh, uh, the DHHS website here. Mm-hmm. The critical and high-risk workers... Oh, no, what's the federal version? Is it DH? Whatever. The health, it's, I'm reading from the health website. You know what the fuck I'm talking about. Critical and high-risk workers, including defense, police, fire, emergency services, and... Noon, do you want to take a guess as to what goes here? Defense, police, fire, emergency services, and... I mean, like they said emergency services, which covers ambulances, but like, I guess ambulances? Sorry, wrong. The answer is meat processing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry, what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> meat. So as this, the, those are going to get rolled out from late March. Meat processing wow. is very important at noon. Yes. Uh, and then you got phase two A, which Not is uh, like teachers or like. Well, maybe if they have drivers. a second job at a meat processing plant. Yeah. Wow. Maybe if they're driving buses Holy shit. full of meat processing. Full of meat. Cold buses. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> um, so that, that's getting rolled out late March. Then you've got phase 2A, a.k.a. phase 3, um, <laughs> which is people over 50 years old and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people between 18 and 54 years old. <laughs> and then phase 2B, a.k.a. phase 4, four. is this bit getting old yet, um, which is pretty me. much everybody else. Um, and the one thing that I've kind of come across in, when I was reading about this, I don't, you know, don't, we don't have time to go into a huge amount of depth mm-hmm. on it, and I don't have strong opinions on this. It's, mm-hmm. Look, I'm just happy vaccines are going out. Seems That's good. good. Yep. It's late compared to other countries, but hey, it's coming. Um, but there has been concern from elderly, elderly people and disabled people who live at home that they're not in the first phase. Um, first phase only includes like people living in residential care, um, mm-hmm. you know, aged care homes or disability homes. Um, 
and you know elderly people and disabled people who live at home uh you know have to wait an extra month or so to get the vaccine and uh there's been a lot of concern from those people being like we are actually still like we're really vulnerable the government's logic is that mm. you know you've got these people in these residential facilities so they're densely populated and and the, there's a risk of the virus spreading there but you know there was an abc story about uh a family uh one family for example where the mum was over 70 years old she had three children with disabilities uh who all came into contact with various carers every day mm, and so you mm. have like literally dozens of different people throughout the house yeah every day in order to like meet everybody's needs uh, and obviously like the infection like the virus getting introduced into that environment would be fucking devastating for that family so yeah some people have uh that, that's the really the only concern, only major concern mm-hmm. that I've heard people voice about this. Um, I don't know. The government doesn't have any plans to change sure. the categories. I think that, you know, they've basically, they've got what they've got. They've taken recommendations from like an independent vaccine expert body yeah, or something. Yeah. And now it's just a matter this of is how it broke down. All the but, vaccines um, and how they can push them out. Yeah. But, um, you know, obviously really hope that um those concerns don't come to pass because mm. it could be really devastating for yeah elderly and disabled people who are living at home all right so now we're going to move on to our first nation story and this is really one that's been going on for a really long time um so there's quite a lot of backstory that i want to give and then i'll get to the bit that's sort of like in the news this week at the moment um yeah it's been going on for like maybe 99 years or like longer, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, and it's a complex legal story, but it's one that some people have been calling another Mabo, um, which is obviously pretty significant. Um, mm. So, like as many listeners will know, this uh, Mabo was the famous court case that overturned the Terra Nullius Doctrine um, that said that the land of so-called Australia was uninhabited and instead acknowledged that there were existing nations with legal claims to the land. Uh, and that claim is called native title and so then we now have the native title system as a result of the Mabo case um so to say that this is another Mabo is pretty big but to be honest Australian commentators love to say any kind of legal decision involving aboriginal sovereignty or land is another Mabo it's It's the vibe it's it's Mabo yeah exactly um but you know this does look like it might seriously be pretty big and you know we've covered a few um issues uh, like test cases that um have covered extinguishment Mm. of native title which is also relevant to this and that's a new legal development that's been quite significant um but there was actually a different legal framework that existed before mabo uh, which is usually called land rights and this Mm -hmm. is one of the rare times that i think a more jargony name might actually be useful because land rights is a really intuitively normal phrase that means like rights about land or whatever um and i'm worried that i'm going to switch between saying land rights meaning this specific legal framework and meaning in the more general thing so if you notice me doing that zach please pick me up on it but anyway. I, I, yeah i absolutely i won't for sure cool cool you bet, all right yeah. well land rights uh this framework doesn't rely on acknowledging pre-colonial relationships with the land in the same way that native title does basically okay. it allows for indigenous-led bodies called land councils to own land Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, practice traditional relationships with the land in whatever ways that those land councils sort of see fit. So that's why, for example, um, First Nations people can fish certain species that non-Indigenous people are banned from fishing because of land yeah. rights stuff. Um, so this is from an article uh, on the Australian 
sorry, the Australian in Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, AATSIS. The legal recognition of Aboriginal land rights in the Northern Territory provided for the creation of Aboriginal land trusts to hold title to Aboriginal land. The Australian government started purchasing privately owned land for the benefit of Indigenous communities and allow certain Crown land to be made available for claim. The Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Act of 1976 resulted in almost 50% of the Northern Territory being returned to Aboriginal peoples. Some state governments followed the lead of the Australian government and introduced their own land rights legislation, but there were significant limitations placed on the lands that were returned or could be claimed. Okay, so that's the backstory. For limitations the... in terms of how, like, what ownership meant or limitations in terms of what land would get handed over? Yeah, so the article wasn't very specific, but basically because the Northern okay. Territory is a territory, it's administered by the federal government, albeit sort of indirectly. Mm -hmm. um, so then the states followed their lead, but had more limited schemes. And I'm not sure the details on what those limitations were, but this website said that they're similar, but not as extensive. Yeah. Okay, so that's the sort of backstory backstory. Now we're going to go back 99 years to the year 1922, when the South Australian government built a water storage facility on Lake Victoria, and the traditional owners, including the grandparents of a woman named Dorothy Lawson, were forced off their land. And so Dorothy Lawson, who's really... Is Lake Victoria in Victoria? It is. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. You know, we got a lot of shit named after the Queen, or various Queens. I'm just double-checking, because it does supply South Australia with water. Uh... Yes, it's just near the South Australian border. Okay. In southwestern New South Wales. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. It's not super essential. Yeah, no, no, it's in New South Wales. It is in New South Wales because it's the New South Wales Land Rights Act that's relevant to this story. Okay. Okay. Cool. Thank you for checking, though. It was worth looking that up. Okay. Dorothy Lawson, who, as I say, is the protagonist of this story, has spent the rest of her life, and she's now 84... Uh, fighting to live on her own land and her family's land. Mm -hmm. So in 1981, she stood in front of a bulldozer that was sent to evict her and her family and destroyed their homes on the basis that they were squatting on Crown land. And she actually won this case. And this is another little sidebar in the story, but she got a letter um, from Magistrate Pat O'Shane congratulating her. And um, Pat O'Shane nice. is uh, someone that we mentioned on a bonus episode uh, when we talked about her mother. Uh, Gladys Dorothy O'Shane uh, was on a bonus episode about Australian feminists. Um, yeah. And her daughter, Pat O'Shane, was the first Abri uh, first female Aboriginal teacher in Queensland, the first Aboriginal to law earn a law degree, the first Aboriginal barrister, the first Aboriginal magistrate, and the first woman and the first Aboriginal person to be the head of a government department in Australia. So she just sent a letter to uh, Dorothy Lawson to be like, Congratulations on this case in '81. So that's a super from cool one badass to another. Absolutely, game game recognized game. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So this has been the history leading up to the latest legal battle that she's fought, which is in the news this week. And so the court of appeal found this week that Dorothy Lawson's family had squatted the land prior to 1922, long enough to take possession of it, and that therefore they owned it legally at the time that South Australia forcibly removed it from them. Fuck yeah. <laughs> So this is from an article uh, on, from NITV from a few years ago. This is based on a 247-year-old law which squatters used in colonial times to dispossess indigenous people of their country and stop the crown from repossessing land that they had grabbed for themselves. And it has the potential to set a precedent, just as the Mabo decision did 24 years ago, 
again, this article was written a while ago, by recognizing the existence in law of native title across Australia. Like Mabo, her case goes to the heart of the legal system's view of indigenous occupation of the land. Mm. And, and That's Dorothy- a very interesting, like, reversal of what that squatting law was initially intended to do. Totally. Which is dispossess indigenous people absolutely and she Mm. is not thrilled about it and she said this i don't like being called a squatter all i want is equal rights for my people to have their say in what goes on in their part of the country yeah and to like have have to use some yeah to have to use some arcane colonialist legal concept when in fact i have always and will always own this land like deeply frustrating but also as a legal maneuver Got to respect the, uh, got to respect the finesse. Totally, yeah, and and she's been in court, as I say, for like basically yeah, seventy consecutive so years. Um, yeah. and she's repeatedly had How bulldozers exhausting. follow her around, demolishing her homes at different locations. She had one of her homes Fucking burned hell. down. Unclear if that was deliberate or not, but she sort of implied that she thought it was. Yeah. Mm. Um. And anyway. Wow. Her case before the Court of Appeal rested on this British legal concept of nullum tempus, which is part of a Latin saying, which means basically time doesn't count for the king. Um, and essentially, uh, this means that statutes of limitations don't apply for the government. And whatever, this is getting a bit detailed. It's not super important, though I found it really interesting. But in Australia, if you squ- if I like lived in your house for 15 years... I could claim it as my own property as a, uh, under a rule called adverse possession. Um, and so squatters use this all the time. Um, but if you squat on crown land, because of nullum tempus, that 15 years is extended out to 60 years. Um, but okay. she has successfully argued that her family squatted that land for 60 years, which gave them legal ownership of the land according to the land rights framework, right? Because all of this happened before native title. There is no native title gotcha. holder for Lake Victoria or that region. Um, and this is something that's come up a lot in reading about this, this story is that these two frameworks overlap and have conflict, um, because one Mm, of them uh, is basically a government organization, the the land council, and the other is basically a pre-colonial nation claiming connection with the land and they Mm. don't necessarily connect with one another. Uh Yeah. There wouldn't be full overlap. Yeah. One of them is much better at talking to government than the other because of how it was created. Mm. Anyway, um, So this is from the decision summary from the Court of Appeal. Mrs. Lawson sought compensation as a descendant of the holders of title to the land which she asserted existed at the time of the resumption, meaning when they, when the South Australian government built the facility there. The minister and the state of New South Wales argued that extinguishing, uh, that that title was extinguished and any other subsiding interest in the land was also extinguished um, because the South Australian government did it. They were like, no, 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 they don't have that title anymore. Um, the court allowed the appeal and found instead that any rights held by Mrs. Lawson over the land were extinguished by the resumption and converted into a claim for compensation. If the court relied on the minister and the state of New South Wales argument, it would mean that the act would have the effect of depriving persons of vested property rights without compensation. Okay, so they've basically said, look, you, your family did own this land. The, the New South Wales government has argued... They used to own it, now we own it, that's it. And instead, the Court of Appeals found, no, you took it from them illegally. They can't have it back, basically, because, like, um, the South Australian government desperately needs that water storage facility, and, like, they're not going to give that back. 
Um, so instead, that the Court of Appeal has said that those claims were extinguished. And this is something, as I said, we've talked about previously on the show about native title extinguishment. Hmm. Uh, and basically, this means the land that the traditional owners have title to has been so badly destroyed that their title is effectively also destroyed, but they should be financially compensated for it. And so yeah. we talked about, um, I think it was the Noongar people down in the southwestern part of the continent. Um, they had like a $280 billion um, yeah. t- native title extinguishment claim. Um, and so this is kind of sad for Dorothy Lawson, who clearly just wants to live on her country. Um, yeah. And the, the Court of Appeal has basically been like, well, you're not going to get it back. But they have acknowledged that they should have had that land and that they will basically be now compensated. So this could potentially lead to loads of crown land being handed directly back to indigenous people on the basis that they had squatted the land successfully. Right. So the argument was still successful. So other people might be able to apply that in places where title isn't extinguished and get the land back directly, or they might, have it extinguished and get compensated financially. So that's why this is potentially another Marbo is that it's opening up this whole new kind of, uh, like avenue for legal mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, Zach, just scroll down the notes in a little bit and have a look at this, um, photo of Dorothy Lawson that I put in there looking out on her country. And I'm just going to read a quote, um, from Philip, the second youngest of her seven children who he's now 52. And he said that the family has outsquatted the squatters. My mother's shown me that you've got to have a bit of balls about you, he says. She's only one little woman in Western New South Wales, and yet she's got cultural integrity. She knows what she's talking about. And this photo of her is just like this beautiful photo of her having a little smile and a point. And she just looks like the most competent and like not fuck withable person. I don't know. There's just a really <laughs> yeah. nice photo of her. Um and so, yeah, it is. yeah, this is, um, this has been a, uh, her whole life fighting for her land. And, um, I think yeah. this decision will probably end most of those legal battles, um, and will, you know, set her up for the rest of her life. Um, but it's still Obviously kind of still, shitty. Yeah. It's still stolen land. Yep. Yep. That's the, yeah. And, and that has been effectively like destroyed by colonization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, what an incredible person. Yeah, really amazing. Uh, also, the the case in 81, I'm pretty sure it was, she won basically without a lawyer. Um, or like her legal counsel was just like some guy she knew. And he was like, yeah, I, the law was just so blatantly clearly in our case. It didn't really matter. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, well, thanks for that story, Nairn. Um now it's time to move on to a little positivity corner. Positivity corner. Uh, so I have two kind of like minor posy corners, I mm-hmm. guess, this week. First, uh, Craig Kelly got suspended from posting on Facebook for a week, which is pretty funny. Nice. Um, and uh, well, it was supposed the ban was supposed to be up for a week, and he's claimed that it's actually gone on longer. Um, well, and good. yeah, he was banned for posting misinformation. Uh, his page though is still up and definitely not subject to the Facebook news ban, mm-hmm. even though most of his posts are screen caps of like news stories with just like 
conspiracy commentary typed over there. Well, remember, Facebook doesn't really care about us reading the news or not. They care about us clicking the links to newspapers. But Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's cool that a lot of people who get their news from Facebook pages like Craig Kelly's will still be able to get that stuff uh, whenever they want it. They just mm-hmm. won't be able to access actual journalism. So that's less Positivity positive. But um, the man. other... <laughs> Positive thing, which is, you know, slightly positive, is um, that another of the federal government's attempts to deport the Tamil family who are in detention on Christmas Island has failed. So uh, that's Priya, Nidus, and their daughters, Kopika and and Tanika, who were living in the Queensland town of Bilawela. They've been in detention for three years now. And I'm sure most people have heard about Mm. the huge amount of community support that has been rallied around this family the Home to Bilo campaign, as it's known. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so last year, the federal court ruled that Tanika, the youngest daughter of the family, had been denied procedural fairness by the government, meaning that the government couldn't wasn't allowed to deport the family. Um, and so this was over the then immigration minister getting a brief from the Home Affairs Department, which asked him mm-hmm. to let Tanika make a visa application. Mm-hmm. He denied this application without telling the family. Oh, okay. rather, he didn't. He, you know, he decided not to let her make an application right. without telling the family. And it's the fact that he didn't tell them what he was doing that ended up constituting a lack of procedural fairness, according right. to this new federal court ruling. Is that too convoluted? <laughs> no, no, it makes sense. It's just like why? It's like if he, he had been a bastard through, if he had been a communicative bastard, if then he'd just been like, it'd be fine out loud. Yeah. That w- yeah, but it's like the extra sprinkling of Kafka-esque cruelty on top of, of, that he yeah. added is what fucked him, which is kind of poetic. Um, <laughs> that's not yeah, my yeah. word, by the way. I mean, the courts are getting them back. Yeah, yeah, and the, the Kafka-esque is not my word. Actually, that's sure, from sure. the uh, the federal court ruling. Um, Hilarious. Yes, the full bench upheld upheld the ruling. They denied the government's appeal. Here's a quote from the ruling. Ordinary human decency indicates that detainees should be informed of the position as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. The government's submission on this topic implied a Kafkaesque approach to these matters. Um, uh, ordinary human decency seems like I've never I've never heard of that legal principle. I'm no law talky guy, so lawyers in the audience. Yes, I know we have. A I don't few. think that anybody in the immigration department has heard of this principle either. It must not be um, on the books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of funny now that you point it out. Um, anyway, this doesn't immediately change the family situation beyond the fact that they are not getting deported. That's what the government would have done if they had won this appeal. Uh, so the family is still in limbo on Christmas Island and they can really only be released through ministerial discretion. So advocates for the family have been lobbying the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, who has the power to give the family protection visas. Mm-hmm. Literally whenever he wants. Yep. So, uh, yeah, all we have to do is rely on a liberal minister to do the right thing. Ordinary human decency. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Exercise a little bit of that classic legal principle. Um, Anyway, that was the uh, two kind of slightly positive stories, which hopefully (laughs) combine into one relatively positive segment. Um. (laughs) But, but they also anyway, also form a full 
normal bad story to get anyway yes 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 yeah that's true um anyway i'm sure that our next story will be super uplifting knowing us fashy australia yeah, so this is a, a fashy story that I got from an Insta video from Whole Money, Whole underscore Money on Instagram, and thanks to our anonymous listener who sent in the video. Um, and unfortunately, because we were away last week, we couldn't cover this before the date for submissions for the inquiry that this video was about has closed. Um, sorry, I said that convolutedly, but the, la- the last part of this video from Whole Money is about like make submissions to this inquiry, and unfortunately they have closed now, so sorry that we are late on that, um, but also... And presumably um, you will soon tell us what inquiry you're talking about. I am, I am, yeah, sorry, I have gotten to this poorly. Um, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get come, there. Come on a long journey through time and space, listener, where eventually information will be delivered to you, your hosts. No, wait, that's us. <laughs> okay, so there's this new... From your hosts. Online safety bill, uh, which Whole Money says is going to have similar effects to Sesta Foster had in the USA. Um, mm. So these are basically anti-sex worker laws, um, and Scarlet Alliance actually has more information about this available for sex workers, so if you're a sex worker, you can contact them for more. Um, and yeah, Whole Money made this Insta video for civilians, as they call them, Um uh, yeah, which is why I was talking about that. It's where I got a bunch of my information. I will post a link to that in the show notes, even though the Senate inquiry into this online safety bill is closed, so you can't make submissions. All right, we got there. Uh, okay. I got it the right we're, way we're, around eventually. We're <laughs> bringing it home. Um, so this so, yeah, online tell safety us more bill. about this online safety bill. It, well, it concerns any websites that any Australian user can access, so basically the entire internet. It gives powers to the e-safety commissioner, who's currently someone called Julian Inman Grant, a former Microsoft and Twitter exec. Um, and these powers would basically allow the commissioner to issue takedown notices to any websites, again, any websites accessible to Australians, that involve class one or class two material. And whole money goes into more detail about this, but this is basically anything that would get an X or a refused classification rating, an RC rating. Um, That's extraordinarily broad. Yes, it is. Yes. Um, and yeah, um, it's likely to include essentially any nudity, any implied sex, anything involving any kinks. Um, and so. Like literally just showing any of that stuff? Um, again, it, this is up to the commissioner to decide if something would yeah. be an X or refuse. Oh, I love it. I love rating. giving. <laughs> I'm, it's Individuals weird that are a whole bunch of discretion. Fine. So maybe like implicit sex or like softcore stuff. I don't know. It's, it's very vague. It is very vague. And that's one of the real big problems. But basically, yeah, yeah. these notices that the commissioner would send would force them to either take down the content or put an age verification barrier in, or the website will be blocked to Australian users within 24 hours. And that's a reduction down from 48 hours, which the current equivalent system... Uh, you know, uses 48 okay. hours. Okay. So as we have already mentioned, the legislation is broad and vague with penalties for the servers hosting the content of up to $111,000. And so as Holmany says, this provides mm. a huge incentive to algorithmically ban any kind of nudity like the so-called female nipple ban on Facebook. Um, because yeah. And this just... is what we saw with Sesta Foster in the States. So basically like anything that could be in any way construed as potentially like selling a sexual service, like could get you your website fucking taken down. 
so they so the sites themselves preemptively self censor, shut down any avenue for sex workers to be able to totally like offer services. And so Cooked! this is bad. The, one of the problems is that there's no recourse or way to appeal or defend from these notices for the users. And so um, I think this specifically is for like, for example, sex workers on Instagram, they mm. can't appeal anything. I think maybe Instagram, who is the one who receives these notices, could potentially appeal them. Um, well, that's the but, great thing about Facebook and Instagram is they're famous for being extremely responsive to complaints from users. Exactly. And like, yeah. it's just obvious that the easy solution for them will just be algorithmically ban anything, even if they yeah. like it. And there's, there's literally like, you can't contact Facebook. Like you can't contact Facebook. You it's, can't it's, contact It's literally Facebook. impossible. Um, <laughs> Yeah, one other side note here that Whole Money mentions is that a proposed aspect of this system would be a facial recognition system, uh, which, like, Jesus literally Christ. the only purpose of that is to track porn actors and other sex workers to flag them more efficiently. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, and so this is a quote from an article in the Canberra Times by Samantha Floriani, who's a digital human rights activist and coder. Um and she said this, this is a huge issue for those who work in the sex industry. Sex workers, pornography creators, online sex positive educators and activists are just some of uh, who will struggle to work online due to this scheme. Yeah. As experience of the controversial Sesta Foster laws in the US, which similarly created a hostile online environment for anyone loosely connected to the sex industry, while also propelling the problematic misconception that trafficking and sex worker equivalent yeah. has shown... As, as that experience has shown, crackdowns such as these incentivize online platforms to remove or censor sexual content altogether to avoid penalty, rather than undertake the much harder task of determining the difference between content that is and isn't harmful. This forces sex workers offline and often into unsafe working environments, in turn causing even more harm. So what is the, is the like, government's, like, supposed motivation to be, like, trying to stop people posting and accessing content that contains, like, sexual assault? So, is, or, like, trafficking? According to Whole Money, um, this is basically the entire legislation. And and this online bills, uh, online safety act, which I'll, I'll t talk about, there's, there's another aspect of it which is super fucked up, is much broader mm. than this. It's not only about sex work. Okay. Um but it's all framed around a hypothetical minor going online, right? Someone okay. under 18 is going online. And um, so this what if they discover that people porn. have kids That's... or whatever? Yeah. yeah. Stop kids accessing porn. Um, and yeah, like uh, I'm sure there's all sorts of other things that the people who are creating the laws think it, it's for. Um, but uh, as this article, uh, as um, Samantha Floriani says... Um, these crackdowns incentivize online platforms to remove or censor sexual content altogether rather than perform the much harder task of determining what is and isn't harmful, right? Mm. So there's no effort to determine is this person consensually engaging in sex? Yes or no. It's just, is there sex happening? We'll get rid of it because we don't want to get fined $111,000. Yeah. Um, and Liberal MP Paul Fletcher uh, wrote a very brief reply to this in the Canberra Times in which he basically was like, no, nah, it's fine. We aren't aiming this at porn. It'll be fine. Um, which really only indirectly addressed part of some of part of 
Floriani's argument. And just for example, she she also points out this bill seeks to block, quote, abhorrent violent material. And so this is, according to the people who are making this legislation, it's to stop, for example, um, the streaming of the Christchurch massacre or beheading videos from Islamic State or whatever. Um, This is abhorrent violent material, minors shouldn't see it. But it could easily include, for example, the footage of George Floyd being murdered by Derek Chauvin or mm. that um, indigenous kid being assaulted by the cop in Redfin last year. Like, those are both potentially abhorrent violent material that websites would automatically flag for removal mm. um, and that would then, like, obviously seriously impact news dissemination, for example. Mm. Um, and Floriani also says that this bill could potentially include encrypted messaging services like Wicker or Telegram and that, quote, Given that the bill includes investigation powers, it is not hard to see how this will be yet another method for the government to undermine encryption, which is an essential tool for activists, whistleblowers, and many marginalized groups. So, Great. A lot to love about this one. So much good news. Yeah, yeah. So I'll put a link to this article by Floriani and also this video by Whole Money, which, as I very confusingly said up top, uh, a lot of it is about making submissions into an inquiry about the online safety bill. Those submissions have closed but it's still a useful video and worth watching. Um, so we'll put those links in the show notes. Cool. Thanks for that sum up, Noon. Now it's time for... Shitpost of the Week. So this week we're giving a shitpost of the week to Thomas, who made some beautiful original content and posted it in the Ospol Shitposting Facebook group, which, touch wood, still exists by the time you're listening to this. And uh, this Very is a crunchy. picture... It's extremely crunchy. It is. There's a crunchy meme. Uh, it's got Rupert Murdoch sitting there kind of like with his, how would you describe, like a fist celebratory, like, yeah. yeah he's he's, he's pumping cheering. his fists. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's got red laser eyes. And then in the other side of the screen, upside down, is uh, Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> face, and he's got green laser eyes. And it says, whoever wins, we lose. Alien versus Predator. Which the like choice of who to make alien and who to make predator is extremely like it's clearly been thought through here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Zuckerberg is a hundred percent the alien and uh, and Murdoch definitely is the predator. Um yeah. yeah. That's also uh, where we're we're thinking Bagelian versus Predator for the, the yeah, episode yeah, title. That's, so. I think it's what we're gonna go with. It's the best we've got so far. Um, yeah, and, and this is, I mean, this sums up one sort of important aspect of the whole, uh, Facebook news shutdown, mm. uh, which we are going to well, try to have a relatively a brief chat about. Yeah. Because we've still got another big story to get to. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that makes this like I've struggled, I guess, to formulate much of a position on this issue mm-hmm. or at least a firm stance because partially you feel like you're caught in the middle of a battle between a whole bunch of people who you hate and don't give mm. a fuck about you. Mm. Um, so, you know, I related I related to this. It's We didn't mention that uh, in the background uh, of this Alien versus Predator, Murdoch versus Zuckerberg. Is, oh, um, yes, sorry. Parliament, Parliament House. House. Yeah. yeah. Which, like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Alien vs. Predator Noon, um, but, like, it all basically takes place within a big underground temple, and it's I sort of like... I think we saw it at the Asta one time. Uh, we, no, we definitely saw they, the original Predator, which that was Predator. is a okay, sure. far superior movie. Right. Um, 
Yeah, as is uh, the original Alien. But Alien vs. Predator is not without its charms. Anyway, my point is, <laughs> it's not hard to imagine, like, Zuckerberg and and Murdoch scurrying about the halls of Parliament as if it was some kind of underground ancient alien temple. Uh-huh, uh-huh, um, sure. Yeah, it works quite well. Uh, <laughs> anyway, well, so... Probably everyone listening knows, but Facebook has nuked Australian news... And also international news for Australians. So, like, basically they're banning people from linking anything that looks even remotely like something Australian and or news-ish. It's basically anything that we might talk about on this show is banned. Yeah, or at least anybody who actually put a bunch of work into creating that content. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's just us and Craig Kelly and Friendly Geordies left. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can shitpost all you want uh, or create completely uh, nonsense irrelevant content like Friendly Geordies, and that's a good way to escape the ban as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, where do you want to start with this, Dune? What do you think, like, what's crucial here? Uh, I guess let's start from the point of, like, you know, we, we spoke on our last regular episode a little bit about what the media bargaining code actually mm. meant and mm. the way in which it was, yeah, essentially setting up this system that was going to favor Australian publications uh, over, like it was going to force these, uh, you know, tech right, right. giants to pay them for their content. Um, but we didn't really get, I guess, into what some of the ramifications of the legislation might be, particularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, you know, what it's really doing in effect. Uh, and so I think one of the big things is, and I, you, I think you did mention this uh, last week, but that basically that the media bargaining code, which, you know, is aimed at getting Facebook and Google to pay a percentage of the advertising revenue that they get from directing people to journalism and pay that, yeah, pay that to the mm-hmm. publishers themselves. But the the legislation cuts out almost all small publishers and really, News Corp and Nine Fairfax are the two big media companies here who would profit from that legislation right, in the right. first place. So that's where you get this, like, you know, this take that really it's like it's Zuckerberg versus Murdoch. It's not, yeah. you know, big tech versus the Australian government, although that is still an element of this story. And there are a lot of ins and a lot of outs, like various different kind of oppositional relationships. Um, so... I think when I did the story two weeks ago, Mm. I was pretty pro the news media bargaining code. And I think I still am, but much gentlier now. Mm. Uh, And, like, one of the reasons for that is something that friend of the show, Lisbeth Latham, said. Um, And she was like, the idea that giving them more money might result in better journalism is, like, the same logic that leads to tax breaks. Yeah. Right. The tax cuts. Yeah. There's Robert nothing Murdoch in the legislation mean... about actually spending that money on like hiring a new journalist, right? Or right. anything like that. There's nothing to stop News Corp just handing that money over to shareholders. For totally. Example. Yeah. So I think that they're. So that's yeah. a reason why you've reduced your support. Exactly. For yes. The media bargaining code since we but last spoke. Okay. My main takeaway from the week or two of like reflecting and people talking mm. about it is that people are getting really outraged at the idea of taking away money from Facebook and Google for some reason that I am not clear on. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I don't really like people are like, 
there's all, all sorts of weird ways they're taking Facebook's side in ways that I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, for yeah, like example... These, trust me, these corporations don't need your help. Right, but what, one of the things was that, um, and I think you sent me something like this, of being like, oh, the reason that all of these pages, and I think there's something you want to talk about, which is probably more like actually relevant and meaningful, but like really vital pages like Cancer Council Australia and... Um, Bureau of two, Meteorology. All, all sorts of other ones that are like... I like probably aren't news, but are included in the ban. People are like, oh, the government included these things in the legislation, and so now Facebook is fucking with them, and so that's the government's fault. And it's like, what I've also the heard, fuck, is that opinion? <laughs> because well, I've like- also heard that people that like it's actually based on the definition that News Corp gave. Um, sure. They, so, but, but it's the same essential argument, right? But. That Facebook is just responding to someone else's definition. Right, but that doesn't make it not Facebook's fault that Facebook is blackmailing the entire country. Like, (laughs) that doesn't make it cool or okay or anyone else's fault or anything like that. It's just like, yes, you have correctly understood what the process of blackmail is. It involves finding things that the other person said that they shouldn't have and then punishing them for it. Like, I don't know, like... And the, uh, what? Yeah. So anyway, I, I think that basically, as yeah, this I've changed my stance on it a bit, which is that this is like a wealth redistribution program from the largest ultra mega corps to like slightly smaller national mega corps. Um, yeah, and- I think, and it's important to frame this conversation. I think around the fact that we are, we're, yeah, we're mostly talking about News Corp and. The nine papers here, but they've also yeah they've also now signed up with Google for the showcase thing. So like they're only gonna get the Facebook end of this deal. Like Facebook really fucked this. I think they they've really put everyone offside. And Scott Morrison's like calling around world leaders this week, being like, "Hey, how fucked is Facebook?" And they're all like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Whereas Google has just like bribed everyone for like four cents. Um, <laughs> bada bing, bada boom. Now everyone in the country is downloading Google Showcase. Like. Uh, Google News. I yeah, well, so, yeah. I get it. Did, like, you know, whether or not Facebook uh, is the villain here. Yeah, well, it's a hundred percent like dependent on your perspective, I suppose. And I've read some coverage from like journalists who I respect, essentially taking the position of this is crony capitalism, where the government is uh, protecting the news organizations that they ideologically align with, mm-hmm. and this is going to set a terrible precedent the world over. Um, because, you know, there are several negative flow-on effects from people not being able to access news via Facebook, and one of them, as we've sort of alluded to earlier in the episode, is that this just leaves the floodgates wide open for people to continue to consume huge amounts of misinformation mm. and mm. conspiracy theories from from pages that cannot in any legitimate fashion be construed as news, but are absorbed as facts by the people who go to those pages, mm. and Craig Kelly's page is a great example of that. Um so, you know, so I guess one perspective might be that if you're generally encouraging governments to take that position and that happens globally, that you're setting a dangerous precedent. Um, I mean, other people have argued that what might happen is that people will go directly to the source for their news more. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, one of right. the headlines this morning was that well, the ABC News app is the most downloaded. It's the number one in the Apple App Store at the well, moment, good. which well, is good. like, yeah, 
it's sure great i'm definitely better them than news corp mm-hmm. um it was quite one of the like uh little cherries on top of this uh, extraordinarily complicated story has been reading foreign foreign like journalists from other countries descriptions mm. of australia and uh someone described the abc news app as like a homegrown aussie news app is top of the apple store it's like oh that's quite yeah, a, that's a national broadcaster but yeah yeah <laughs> um like which i understand that we're a dinky backwater like that you know that's fine i don't have an issue with that it was just mm-hmm. funny also like sentences like Ah, oh, but the effects of the media bargaining code will ripple far beyond the pristine beaches of Australian shores. And it's like, <laughs> is that all we are, you people? And the answer we're is, just well, a yeah. series of shrimps with barbecues underneath. Them. That and the and the country that's failing to to fight big tech. But like, well, you go on, go on. I was going to say there was another point uh, that I, I saw made that was like um, something that the way that the news media bargaining code has been framed, and this was something mm. I said the other week, was that. Um, it's, you know, newspapers used to get ad revenue and now all of the ad revenue is migrated yes. into these digital spaces so they don't have that ad revenue anymore um, and that that's a problem. Um, and that, like, death, but but that that isn't necessarily what the main issue is, right? That, that it's, like, neoliberalism or, like, the people in charge of the companies aren't interested in doing journalism anymore mm. for whatever reason or, or whatever. Um, and that also that it's, like, Facebook isn't like the service that they're providing should be free right like they shouldn't have to pay because i send you a link right that it's like it's not really their fault that i'm sending you a link to abc or whatever that it goes through Mm. facebook so like why should they have to pay for it or whatever they're not they're not directly profiting from it or blah blah blah. which you know but, like, they're making a huge amount of money. And, like, we don't tax people on the basis that they've stolen their wages. We should. But, like, we don't. We tax them because we want to provide services and we think mm. you've got enough money to spare. And so We don't that tax level, these companies at all, though. Right. So we might as well make them just directly pay some people something. Like, it would be better if they paid tax. But, like, I don't really... Well, like, that, well to, to be like, thing, it's think... unfair to charge Facebook because this isn't a reasonable equivalency, right? The the revenue that we're taking from them doesn't really make sense on some level. But it's like, so? They're the, like, third largest company in the entire world or something. Like, who, who literally yeah, who like, gives a fuck? Like, fuck, fuck it, fuck they them. can spare it, yeah. Yeah. No, but I think that you like you're getting at the heart of why like the government or any neoliberal government is ultimately not going to be able to deal with this in any kind of effective way. So one mm. yeah, when one of the yeah, major kind of like uh alternative propositions that people have made is like, well, yeah, like why don't if we tax these companies in the first place and we're able to then, you know, like distribute that money and use it to fund public interest journalism mm. uh like that that would be a great solution but of course this government isn't capable of doing that because yeah, yeah. one they don't believe in regulation they you know, like hand to the free market is king they absolutely like they there have been decades of opportunities dealt for news media bargaining it's literally like we uh, have nothing to do with it like you guys d- yeah. decide and then we'll choose if we have to like yeah, like it, it, it's quite hands off in that regard, and but you know, the, like this undermining of establishment media's business model by social media is like 
in no way a new thing. There have been people talking about this for literal decades. And if the government was interested in having a robust media ecosystem, mm, mm. they could have regulated and legislated about this long ago. In, but then, like, but a robust... But been reading journalist terms. Exactly. They've been doing the fucking opposite. They've been ha- removing restrictions on concentrating media power in the hands of a few rich fucking assholes. They've been, as you say, targeting individual fucking journalists. Yeah, and defunding public journalism. There's Mm. no way that they they were ever going to tax these corporations and then use that money to fund public interest journalism. Like, that is the ideological polar fucking opposite to everything that they do and they stand for. But they've put themselves in this position because they were very happy for the media to... to to con for the power media power to concentrate in the hands of the few and for media's influence establishment media's influence to wane over the last few years because without good investigative journalism you don't have people to hold the government to account mm. so you know they've put themselves in this position where now suddenly like their friends at these big companies are like wait a minute, we're getting fucked here. You guys need to do something about this. And Mm. in fact, like the government is trying to undo decades of inaction and malice and, 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 and yeah, and exactly. And malicious proactive undermining of the media establishment. So there's no way that they were ever going to be able to effectively deal with this situation. It's just like contrary to everything that makes up who they are as a political entity. Mm. So that's my take on it. It's not very uh, economic, you know? It's not very detailed, but uh, that's what's kind of been percolating. Yeah. I I think it's been interesting to have a take, see this thing come through, and then see everyone else. My main opinion is everyone should shut the fuck up defending Facebook. Like, just just don't instead. Yeah, Even if you think it's bad, just just, just don't. <laughs> we'll see you all on the uh, ABC News app. Yeah, possibly on Reddit. Um, well, great. I feel like we've drawn uh, no conclusions there, which Perfect. means that it's time to move on. Um, so for our final story this week, uh, we're going to talk about Brittany Higgins. So this story has a big content warning for mentions of rape, sexual assault, and suicide. Um, and this is the last story of the show. So if you, you know, if, if you don't want to listen to that, now would be the time to stop listening. Um, so I think there's kind of two discussions to be had around this story. And one, one is concerning the actual, the logistical narrative you know, what actually happened mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the kind of ensuing cover-up. And then a kind of broader conversation about what is what are the kind of cultural circumstances that give rise to something like this. So I guess let's maybe start off uh, just sort of recounting the events and then get into sure. a little bit more of, of a discussion about, you know, how it happened and what it means uh, later on. But so... This story is about Brittany Higgins, who was a staffer in the office of Linda Reynolds in March of 2019, just before the election. Linda Reynolds is a Liberal MP who was the uh, then Minister for Defence Industry. 
Uh, so Brittany Higgins was 24 in 2019 when she started working uh, in Reynolds' office. And three weeks into her job, she was raped by another of Linda Reynolds' staffers. They had been out at a bar. He got her drunk to the point of falling over. And then he took her back to Parliament House where he raped her in Linda Reynolds' office. Um, and I don't think that we need to go much more into the details of, yeah. of the assault than that. Um, Higgins gave a, a quite in-depth interview on the project mm. uh, to journalist Lisa Wilkinson, which is about a half an hour and is obviously extraordinarily harrowing. But if you want uh, to hear her side of the, well, if you want to hear her describe it in her own words, um, that is the place to do it. Um, but in any event, the, the following week, the staffer who raped Higgins was fired for a, a security breach because mm. he had entered Parliament House after hours, um, not for the rape. And uh, he was sent on his way with a couple of references, which helped him land uh, a cushy job, as I understand it, at like a lobbying or public relations firm in Sydney, something like that. Mm -hmm. So a week after the assault, Higgins was called into a meeting with uh, Linda Reynolds and her then chief of staff, a woman named Fiona Brown. And this meeting was called in the same room where she was raped. So it's just awful. Yeah, that's been a detail that's come up a lot. In yeah, the stories about it, which I think is important because it like it's just such a visceral detail of how they responded to this, or like I don't know. Yeah, yeah I it's it totally indicative of the complete lack of compassion or understanding or support that Higgins received from within uh, her workplace, her party. Mm. You know. <laughs> It is it, it it is a salient detail, I think. And yeah, Higgins says that she was pretty much immediately made to feel like this was her problem. Like in that meeting with her boss and her boss's chief of staff, mm. they basically made it clear to her in as many words, you know, without ever explicitly saying so, but mm -hmm. that she had to choose between going to the police or keeping her job. And then after that point, that Linda Reynolds never mentioned the assault to her again. So these people are just like, immediately, this is... And I think how Higgins described it was, they made me feel like it was a political problem. That's That was the issue. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that she'd been assaulted. It was like, oh, it's mm. immediate, immediate damage control. Mm. Um, and, you know, beyond that point, uh, Higgins' trauma was is compounded by all these... Not I wouldn't call them failures of procedure, but so in so much as like a procedure that was working in service of protecting mm. the party as opposed to protecting uh, or supporting her. Things like, for example, there being lots of CCTV footage uh, lead of her leading up to the incident. She was repeatedly asked if she she repeatedly asked if she could see the footage, and she was repeatedly denied. Uh, the room where the rape took place was steam cleaned the day after the, it happened. Uh, an incident report uh, from within Parliament House about the you know about the attack was withheld from the Australian Federal Police for two weeks. The like, fuck? All this kinds of stuff. In any event, Higgins eventually decides not to make a complaint, an official complaint with the police, although she does tell them what what had happened. And I'll I'll get into a little bit later. Um, 
the nature of reporting crimes from within Parliament House is sure. dealt with by the Australian Federal Police. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later. So then Higgins is basically given the option by Fiona Brown. Either at this point you can take leave. This is the chief of staff, sorry. The chief of staff, yeah. Either you can take leave and go home and run out the rest of your contract and then, you know, we part ways. Or you can keep working for Linda Reynolds, but you get shipped to Western Australia. So Higgins ends up taking the, the job in Western Australia and she says that during the time that she was working there that she was suicidal. Uh, she ends up moving to Michaelia Cash's office in late 2019 and she's worked in Cash's office uh, until February this year when she resigned. So the, she's now actually um, made uh, an official complaint with the Australian Federal Police who... yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, AFP have jurisdiction within Parliament House. There's a specific like L, uh, section of the AFP who gotcha. have jurisdiction there. So anyway, there's a, there is a police investigation happening now, uh, but that's only happened in the last couple of days. So that's kind of the story, I suppose, from or, or an, an overview of this of the of the story that um, mm-hmm. of Higgins' story. I mean, she was raped by a colleague. She received no support from her workplace at all. She was made to feel like she would be betraying the Liberal Party if she went to the police. She had her trauma compounded several times by the brutal response from uh, her, you know, the people mm. around her and her bosses. And then, you know, eventually she had to go public in order to achieve any kind of sense of, uh, of of justice for herself. And, like, we can go into this a little bit later, I suppose, but, you know, that societally we require victims of trauma and, you know, women specifically to relive this stuff on, on the public stage and, like, subject themselves to, you know... To public opinion, but also just even mm. the experience mm. of like you know watching the interview uh, that Higgins did with with Wilkinson, like literally, you know, she had to sit down and be interrogated about yeah. the experience of being raped, knowing that it would be broadcast on national television mm. in order to feel like <laughs> she was able to get any kind of attention. Yeah. Mm. Which you know, it just the fact that we require that of victims is just so is just fucking shocking but anyway there's this whole other kind of concurrent conversation if you want to call it that happening Mm. around who knew what when and there have been the developments have just been coming thick and fast this week so the story's in really a very different place uh today of day of recording saturday to where it was uh when it was first broken which i think was last uh last weekend saturday or sunday um there it was broken on news.com I'm pretty sure. Um, and so there's a lot of staffers and ministers saying to the, something to the effect of, yeah, I knew there was an incident, but not what it was. Mm-hmm. Bullshit, if you ask me. But the most interesting, you know, did they know and when did they know right, right. is Morrison uh, and what he claims to have known. So Morrison claims to have only found out about it this week, but when he was first asked about it in Parliament, he said that he knew on the 5th of April, which presumably it's the 5th of April, 2019, uh, before correcting himself and being and saying, oh, I don't, actually, no, it was uh, 12th of February this year. April 5th, 2019 is one day after Linda Reynolds was spoken to by the Australian Federal Police about the incident. And right. now 
Brittany Higgins has released texts between herself and another Liberal staffer who offered to talk to the Prime Minister's office on her behalf on the 3rd of April 2019. Mm. Uh, the text says, quote, spoke to PMO. He was mortified to hear about it and how things have been handled. He's going to discuss with Chief of Staff. So that text is sent on the 3rd. The following day, Linda Reynolds is visited by the AFP. Yeah. And then April 5th, the day after that, is when Morrison says that he knew about it. Oh, no, I didn't know about it. Actually, it was 12th of February this year. That's a weird date to get wrong so it sounds, specifically. And, like, considering that and, and uh, Fiona Brown actually ended up working under Morrison as well. Right. So yeah. either... Like, and given that, either, like, by saying he didn't know, Morrison is either admitting that people under him have no requirement to report fucking serious crimes to him. Yeah, yeah. Or that he's lying. Like, those are the two options. Yeah. Uh, And I think probably most of our listeners can determine which one of those it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, both could be true. Yeah, and, like, I think for a lot of stuff, they do carefully not tell them things, especially when it's stuff about, like, branch stacking or election fraud or whatever. But, like... When it comes to this kind of thing, I mean, there's been a lot This is very of, different. Yeah. It is. It is very different. And, like, I don't exactly want to use Malcolm Turnbull as a source, but he was, like... He's essentially been, like, there's no fucking way that Morrison didn't know about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I'm inclined to believe him. Yep. Uh... <laughs> Uh, anyway, so let's let's get now to like what the sort of political response has been, what the kind yeah. of broader surrounding culture around this is. So the other, you know, the thing that kind of made the news was Morrison's initial response to this. So uh, on Monday he gave the uh, oh it's under police investigation excuse. I'm not going to comment. Uh, that's bullshit. Higgins actually hadn't filed a complaint with the Australian Federal Police at that right. stage. Same excuse was used by Linda Reynolds when she was asked about it in Parliament as well. They love it, yeah. Yeah, well, they are hiding behind this thing, which and like it just tell it goes to show that every time a politician says that shit, that it's a fucking smokescreen. And in this case, it just wasn't even true, which is so enraging. Anyway, so the following day. I'm sure everybody is aware of this, but uh, Morrison came out with the wife and daughter's excuse. Quote, Jenny and I spoke last night. She said to me, you have to think about this as a father. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? And I don't think that you and I really need to go in to explain that, like, rape is bad when it happens Mm. to people that you're not related to. Mm. Because there have been, uh, you know, quite a lot of very well put together think pieces explaining this extraordinarily basic yes. concept yes. um you know but it's a, it's a very I also it's think, a classic go on look i've been listening to a bunch of you're wrong about recently and something that um one of the hosts always says is like you know it's okay to learn things and to like behave differently once you learn things and like it would be inconceivable that morrison has lived this long and gotten to where he is without realizing that like rape is bad regardless of who you're related to or whatever but like if he did need to have this conversation to realize that he should not have gone out and then said that right like that because it's like completely diminishes it 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 
it says it's not really a problem for most people. Like we don't have to think about this. It just yeah. sends this like terrible message about it being this like, Oh, incidental kind of like, Oh yeah, I haven't really thought about it. Like, well, I yeah. think the other thing that it really does is that it frames rape as a women's problem. It's not right. something that right. I, That's as a exactly man, it. could ever yeah. understand or relate to. Yeah. Nothing to do with me. Mm. But I asked my wife, and she said to think about my daughters, who are subjected to this. And so it's ultimately like a slightly more sophisticated way of saying boys will be boys. I yeah. could never understand that because it's not my wheelhouse. <laughs> because, like, as if men have no role. In rape. Yeah, like that, right. And right. ultimately, like that's what I think is one of the major things at the root there. It brings up a whole host of other fucked up questions as well. For example, like, okay, what if the person who has been raped is not white? And they don't look like, you mm, know, this woman doesn't look like your daughters. Like, mm. what are we going to do then? And, you know, anyway, deeply, deeply frustrating stuff. And I'm, sh as, uh, I'm sure, like, I'm preaching to the quiet here. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um. But, yeah, it's fucking enraging. Anyway, so he also announced uh, that on the, on, the, on the Tuesday internal reviews. So mm -hmm. um, I, we can all rest easy that everything's going to be sorted out now. That's great. One of those reviews is going to be conducted by the Liberal Party, and another of them is going to be conducted by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. In uh -huh. other words, they're both going to be under Scott Morrison's direct control. Also... The person conducting the uh, mm -hmm. Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet investigation is going to be the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, who is uh -huh. Phil Gatchens. And part of his job will be to determine whether Morrison knew about those text messages that Britney had released. Wow. And uh, as uh, Peter Van Onselen pointed out, who, by the way, has been doing quite a lot of good reporting on this this week. Mm -hmm. I, you know, mixed feelings about the guy, but yep. I, I think he's on the money with this one. And uh, PVO has, has pointed out repeatedly that uh, Phil Gatchens was the person who, who headed up uh, the government's uh, inquiry into the sports rorts and found no wrongdoing. Um, cool. Yeah. So he, I mean, you know, he's been put in charge because he's a team player who yep. is not going to find adversely against the prime minister. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in response to this, Labor called for an independent external review. Okay. Um, and under... You know, political pressure. There seems to be general support for that, like from Morrison as well. Mm -hmm. uh, three independent women members of parliament have called for the establishment of an independent complaints body. So mm -hmm. I believe that was, it was definitely Zali Stegall, potentially Rebecca Sharkey as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, Higgins herself has called for an independent reporting mechanism where staff can make complaints confidently and safely. Um, so those are kind of some of the suggestions that have been made, you know, or at least the, the immediate suggestions. Um, but the political maneuvering around this issue continues. Mm -hmm. One of the things that came out this week, and this was broken again by Peter Van Onselen, is that Scott Morrison's office has been backgrounding Brittany Higgins's partner. That the fuck? apparently, yeah, that in internal briefings, that uh, the Prime Minister's office has basically been suggesting that Higgins' partner holds a political grudge against the party what because the he used to be a public servant, which is like... What? Just a, that... an entirely new evolution of fucking disgusting. Like, but these people have no other 
lever to pull. Like it's one hundred percent political warfare all Spin the time. That's bullshit. what they live yeah. and breathe. Yeah. Um. Uh, another comment that uh, has been drawing a little bit of media attention was Higgins' response to Morrison kind of fudging the timelines and basically denying that he knew, mm-hmm. you know, anything about this. She said, quote, the continued victim-blaming rhetoric by the Prime Minister is personally very distressing to me and countless other survivors. Um, so the general attitude is definitely still one of treating this, as Higgins put it, as a political problem. Mm. When she reported it to her direct actual boss, it was a political problem. And now that she's gone public with it, it's a political problem just on a bigger mm-hmm. scale. Like mm-hmm. that's how the Liberal Party uh, has responded to responding. this. Yeah. Um, one of the other like interesting aspects to this story are the kind of practical issues of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, like crimes happening within Parliament House. So mm-hmm. members of Parliament are protected at both federal and state levels by legislation. Essentially, on a federal level, it's the Members of Parliament Staff Act, I believe. Okay. Um, which is why, like. Basically, the Australian Federal Police, uh, who have you know jurisdiction in Parliament House, can't actually do anything, can't like open any investigations or prosecute anyone without the say so of the presiding officers. So that's the okay. Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. So like, right. politicians are allowed to tell the cops whether or not they to can or can't investigate done by stuff. Politicians. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, yeah, as you can imagine. Fucked system. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was an interesting piece in the Saturday paper this week from uh, Dania Mani, who is another ex-liberal staffer who was also raped by uh, a colleague of hers. And she started a campaign called Changing Our Headlines, which is about uh, introducing a, a, yeah, basically like a culture of safety within like political jobs for women. Um, and what she said was, uh, quote, staff can be hired and fired without cause at any time and are specifically excluded from the remit of employment law, whether through the Fair Work Act or industrial relations legislation. Wow. So like that leaves in like, yeah, political staff is incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, and this was news to me. Um, yeah. she went on, uh, and to, in response to kind of these political responses that I had mentioned earlier, you know, calls for various inquiries mm-hmm. and investigations, etc. Um, and this is a quote from her. Vitally, these initiatives are not designed to change the Members of Parliament Staff Act or other legislation that leaves staffers suffering assault and misconduct at the hands of colleagues or politicians without any meaningful access to remedy. Morrison has no plans to afford staffers any real rights. Labour's response is not better. Anthony Albanese and Tanya Plibersek have pointed the finger at liberal ministers while failing to take any responsibility. Not one word in their joint statement acknowledges that female Labour staffers are just as at risk because of where they work. The opposition has been calling all week for an independent external review, which Morrison agreed to on Wednesday, but Labour has said any review of sexual misconduct in Parliament should be modelled after the British Parliament's review, but that review did not fundamentally change what was broken either. What's needed is encoded legal rights for staff supplemented by binding, clear workplace policies, which sounds pretty basic when you lay it out like that. Um, But I think that uh, that's probably the clearest and most practical 
uh, like logistical response mm-hmm. that I've seen mm-hmm. suggested anywhere. Um, you know, she's really kind of identified this is like a, in from from I guess like a, a work workers rights perspective. Totally, yeah, it's a really good aspect to look at it from, and the the point about the Labour Party making noises but being just as complicit is really good. I think, yeah. It's the same workplace. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah. It's the same workplace. And, you know, even on a, on, from a kind of political perspective, you know, as Scott Morrison, like, very cynically and in a, in a disgusting way pointed out this week, what, what he said was, like, this problem is not confined to any one party, which is, like, okay. a gross way for Shut him to up. deflect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, he's true. There have been, you know, there are, right, right. like, you know, misogyny, unfortunately is not a partisan issue yeah. within Victorian socialists, the New South Wales yeah. Labour Party with Luke Foley, which, by the way, all of the, like those incidences of assault were written off as touching an ass, but or may or yeah. may not have touched an ass by friendly Geordies, a fucking mouthpiece for misogyny, fucking piece of shit. The, the Greens, Jeremy Buckingham, like, you know, th- these, these cases are, are, are rife throughout all levels of government across the entire political spectrum. Um, and... Further, this week, like, more and more stories have started to come out. Um, the stories about Craig Kelly's, one of Craig, Craig Kelly's top advisor, like, mm-hmm. kissing teenage interns, like, Ugh. without, the, like, you know, like, assaulting teenage interns. Yeah. Like, it's fucking really, really bad. And this and, and this story broke this morning, just before we started recording, a second woman, another former liberal former liberal staffer has said that she was raped by the same man who assaulted Higgins. She says that the government had the government pursue the issue properly, that she wouldn't have been raped. And Mm. of course, you know, the the fact that this guy gets to not only leave like his job free of, or any kind of meaningful consequence that he's sent out the door with like glowing recommendations that land him another cushy position. Like, in, in what way does that sound like anybody who's, like, learned anything about why their mm. behavior is fucked? Mm. Like, obviously, there's no lesson to be learned there for him. But, like, you know, having said that this is, obvi- this is like, you know, a- a- an issue. It's just, I mean, it's a societal-wide issue. But, you yeah. know, even within yeah. politics that it's kind of, you know, across the spectrum. Acknowledging that also I don't think means that we can't be critical of the specific culture within the Liberal Party that that results in this, you know, what are the values that they espouse as an organization? And that, as you say, you know, I mean, part, like it's the same building, you know, that mm. both that the Labour Party works in as well, and that Parliament is is a boys' club is not in dispute. But the kind of pipeline from like private school, private boys school to like Mm. most powerful men in the country is something that is extremely prevalent within the liberal party specifically. Yep. Um, and like, so there was this other, other story this week, um, which is about a petition that was started by a woman named Chantel Contos, a 22 year old woman. She went to high school in Sydney she started this petition calling for sexual consent education in in schools. Within 24 hours, it had 1,500 signatories from 50 schools in 24 hours, cool. and it also had, you know, it, basically these women writing in about these 
experience they had of experiences they had of being assaulted while mm. at school, like children, um, and this is backed up by statistics. Um, in, in 2016, there was a, a an Australian Bureau of Statistics study that estimated that one in six women over the age of 15 had experienced sexual assault, but that same study also showed that like the uh, age group that had the highest rate of like sexual assault offending were boys age 15 to 19. So yep. that these, you know, uh, women are like writing about their experiences, you know, being sexually assaulted in high school is unfortunately not surprising. It's shocking, but it's not surprising. Mm. Um, there's this quote here from her saying, uh, we were sharing stories about how she came up with the idea for the for the uh, for the petition. Chantelle Conta, she said, we were sharing stories and basically realized we had unlimited rape stories to share from our friends from these different schools. And she specifically singled out single sex private schools. Um, that there's you know not just the atmosphere of privilege and impunity, but mm, obviously mm. that like girls become this sort of like abstract other... concept yeah, yeah. to you when you like you don't interact with them and so i mean i guess what i'm trying to get at here is that like digging down beneath all of this is you know when you get to the root of it i think one of the fundamental things that we need to talk about here is is we need to teach boys about consent mm. and that's it it's uh it's it's as basic as that. It's because obviously this you know this is a particular problem because of as we've discussed uh, the the lack of uh, protections within the workplace in Parliament House uh, and also like you know the prevalence of uh, people from a particular like section of society where any kind of understanding of like gender equality or the you know that like any kind of understanding of uh, consent is like less prevalent, but it's, it's as, as I've said, this is, it's a societal issue. And I think that Morrison's response, as we described before, is a massive arrow pointing to the problem, which is this attitude of rape as a mm. as a problem for women. It's not. It's, no, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's men's, a men's problem. problem. Yeah. Mm, and mm. as a man, I feel like I have the responsibility to, to, to speak out about this and to take responsibility, not just for myself, but obviously like encouraging, like, you know, encouraging, encouraging this in other men as well. You know, it's about having conversations with other men about this. And I think talking about issues you know, like this, like they require a huge amount of sensitivity and, mm. you know, you and I, well, I definitely can't speak from any position of personal experience or authority on this. And like, I think that the voices of women on this issue are going to be vastly more important to listen to, but stepping back from the issue mm. as a mm. man is, I don't think the solution because yeah then yeah it's an abdication of that responsibility mm, right mm. you have to be we we have to be proactive about naming the problem and saying that it 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 rests with us and it's our responsibility to teach boys what consent is what it looks like what respecting other people and mm. their bodily autonomy actually looks like um 
And that doesn't mean speaking over women or, or speaking for them. It means recognizing, you know, where you have responsibility and control and uh, utilizing that in order to fight for like, <laughs> in, in, in order to fight for a, a, a world where women can go to work without worrying about being assaulted. Mm. It just, it's, you know, and it's like mind blowing that, you know, it just sounds so basic and yet here we are. All right. Well, yeah, that, that's a a long and awful story. And thank you for doing the research there and talking to us about it. And yeah, I think it is an important conversation for us to, to have, and it's an uncomfortable one. Um, but it's worth spending time on, but we have actually spent an enormous amount of time. This is easily our longest episode ever so i think we need to wrap up yeah i say uh, it was a very have... rambling no we had uh, a, a series last little of while i mean it was yeah it was always going to be a long episode but um yep yeah um so yeah as we set up top we're going to play the ospol snackbot extendo drum and bass remix at the end of the show but and we also have our pup date uh but before then, uh, you know, go over to Patreon, uh, support us. One US dollar, you get a bonus monthly episode. We are thinking about switching up prices to so like Australian dollar. We'll we'll talk to you about that uh, sometime. Don't worry about yeah, that. Yeah, the option has only just become available. So yeah, there may be developments in that space. Uh, otherwise, if you if you like what we do, uh, we'd really appreciate a review over on Apple Podcasts. That would yeah. be awesome. And uh, chuck us a little follow on Twitter and on Insta as well. Also, now that, you know, Facebook is somewhat newsless, maybe send us to a friend who's been like, oh, where should I get my news? Um, we are not an adequate substitute for actually consuming the news, but hopefully we help a bit. <laughs> we help it go down easier. Yeah, I think that's that's the idea. All right. Is it time for our pup date? Yeah, I'd say so. Now it's time for our pup so I'm I'm pretty excited for this one. This is a pup date. Oh, yeah? It's been like six months in the works, and I finally can tell our listeners. You you may recall I mentioned just after we started doing the pup date that Bagel like busted out of my room at like five in the morning several times. He just like ran headfirst into the door, broke out, and chased a cat down. I the do side remember of the house. it was one of our yeah. earlier pup dates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, once I went out without pants and like tackled him. Yeah, it was uh, not not good. Um, and so me and my housemate put a little bolt on the inside of the door at about, you know, snoot height um, so that he couldn't do that. And I've locked it every night for, you know, the last however long it's been since I've had it installed. And not once has Bagel tried to break out of the, the room. And it's been really disappointing. Um, but this morning he did. Uh, at about five in the morning, he ran out from under my bed, ran headfirst into the door, which remained fully shut. And I just like smiled and rolled over in bed and went back to sleep and it was it was lovely it worked perfectly so that's the pup date that, that's my <laughs> he didn't date. bonk himself too badly uh he seemed fine i think there was a cat <laughs> in the backyard and he was a little bit edgy about that but i checked that mm. he wasn't you know injured or anything you mm. know, but yeah was, whenever um, i have uh, people over i mean dante always gets extraordinarily excited to yeah, meet new people yeah. it's a lot of work trying to teach him not to jump up on everybody yep. but one of the things that happens is like our house is not you know, it, it can be a bit cramped, I suppose. Sure. And so Dante, when he's excitedly jumping One up excited on people. dumpy, yeah. Yeah, he's often, 
bumping into basically everything that he possibly can and just like severely knocking himself in the face or what appears to be severely and like and people's response is always like oh oh geez like it, honestly they look like there should be a knockout blow Dante, yeah. you know smacking his head on a metal chair or whatever in excitement and he's just like looking around like what what's up what are you guys what are you what are you guys talking about it's time for me and to they- bash my head against more stuff like he just no response there's they're also like it's so funny when they get sooky about a really small thing after that it's like <laughs> i i literally just saw you like run head first into a tree and now i like i like stepped on your paw and you've like you're never gonna walk walk again you know it's <laughs> yeah. like how dare you step on a little bagel such an innocent bagel and yet you crush his foot <laughs> Cruelly, out of spite and deliberately. <laughs> yeah. No, his foot's fine. He's doing all right. All right. Um, I think we're done. Everyone get your nice headphones out. Um, get your glow sticks on. Drop yeah, your fingers. Thanks very much for joining, everybody. Uh, extra long, extra content, bonus content length for you this week. We should say what our bonus episode this month's going to be. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. We're going to watch Not Quite Hollywood and talk about it, hopefully, with a special guest from the Australian film and TV scene. Um, Wowee. Yeah. TBC. Uh, Yeah, Not Quite Hollywood is a documentary about the Australian film industry in the 70s and 80s when the Australian government introduced a tax write-off for movie production, and so we produced shitloads of terrible, low-grade exploitation movies, uh, some of which are very entertaining and others of which are extremely distressing. Evil. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So we'll be watching and discussing, check that out over on the bonus feed. That'll be coming to you soon. But in the meantime, enjoy this, uh, extendo drum and bass, multiple themes, remix of the Ospol snack pod theme song. Thanks for joining us and, uh, keep on snacking in the free world. Crunch, crunch. Uh...
you bring hot 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 Oshos Nekod, 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 Oshos Nekod,